0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Adam Green, co-founder and CEO of YieldX, a breakthrough technology infrastructure that is reimagining fixed income. The company launched in October 2020 and is helping institutional clients democratize fixed income access, analytics portfolio construction, and optimize capabilities via an API-driven, modular tech platform. Prior to co-founding YieldX, Adam was a co-founder at Moneyline. Founded in 2013, Moneyline provides a mobile and financial membership platform that empowers users to take control of their personal finances. In today's episode, we discuss Adam leaving Moneyline to build something new, increased demand for automation and fixed income investing, and arbitraging Spice Girl concert tickets. Hope you enjoy the show! Hey, Adam, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We're super excited to have you here. How are you doing, and uh, where are you joining us from?
1: Yeah, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, big fan of your show. Uh, I'm joining you live from beautiful, sunny Miami.
0: Oh, I'm jealous. It's pretty good in New York, but I feel like it's probably a little better where you are. Uh, so could you could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners and maybe providing an overview of your career prior to uh, co-founding Moneyline?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I I mentioned uh, before we started recording, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, not too far from the Penn campus. And actually, my parents met at Penn. So I've got a a lot of love for you all and um, really uh, had a great experience growing up there, then progressed on to uh, go to Syracuse University, studying entrepreneurship, interestingly enough, as well as finance and accounting. And then uh, decided to go down the traditional path of heading heading onto Wall Street, and started off at Bear Stearns, and uh, focused really pri- primarily on high yield bonds and uh, leverage finance. And as many folks do, made a number of stops at various firms across Wall Street, and ultimately ended up at Citadel. And uh, that was the, the last stop uh, before starting Moneyline.
0: Amazing. I'm a pen double dipper. Actually, it's always nice to hear good things about the university. Uh, so what prompted you to leave that career in finance and co-found Moneyline? I imagine there's something you saw on the market that you could do a good job of solving.
1: Well, first of all, I would argue that uh, I didn't leave finance. I just uh, kind of evolved along with where the market was headed. And I think uh, history has proved I was a a pretty good decision at that point. Um, having said that, you know, I think my time on Wall Street uh, was invaluable in the context of, of starting and running a company, especially in fintech. And actually, back when we started Moneyline, fintech wasn't really a term you heard so much. But really, what we saw post Dodd Frank and coming out of the crisis was the traditional banks were essentially hamstrung from offering products and services to. Consumers with a, essentially what they considered a subprime FICO score, so that was uh, classified as anyone below a six hundred and eighty FICO at the time. That obviously is a significant portion of Americans, believe something around a hundred million. And so, my partner D and I decided that uh, perhaps we could try applying technology and using some innovative data analytics and and methodologies outside of the traditional FICO analysis to go direct to the consumer and offer a product and solution where people could get a a much better sort of service that was more appropriate and and appropriately priced risk for them than perhaps the banks were able to offer at the time. And so, Mm you know, especially given the fact that the banks at that time were really not focused on growth you know as is mo- with most things in life timing plays a huge role and so we came into the market right when a lot of the traditional money center banks were focusing on a uh, defensive posture and really uh, figuring out what the world looked like what their most importantly their balance sheets looked like after the crisis and so we took that opportunity to uh, get a great team of folks together and give it a shot and thankfully worked out great
0: How do you view Moneyline's current role in the consumer finance space, especially compared to other investing platforms or other neobanks?
1: Sure. So, you know, when we started the company, the goal and the vision was really to offer financial freedom and opportunity to people. And I think most people would agree that the banking system has done a great job of offering opportunities and products to people over the course of time at the point of need, but we really wanted to use technology to anticipate what the right products were for people and to offer them a pathway to different options that were really right for them at the right time and to give them a way to Essentially, get more opportunity based on certain behaviors, based on certain positive feedback loops, and really to have a single source of truth for their financial lives and their opportunities that they were looking for, whether that was in asset management, whether that was in uh, credit products, and so that's something that I think Moneyline has done a great job with. And um, over time, that that vision has continued to
0: manifest. Got it. Yeah, I think nobody can argue that Moneyline has done a good job with that. Other co-founders of the company are still there, and you decided to leave in 2019. Uh, at that point, it was fairly obvious that the company was was doing well and would continue to do well. Um, so just curious about that uh, decision-making process.
1: Yeah, well, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity and an amazing journey. And Dee has done a remarkable job continuing to grow the company. You know, my passion has always been around building something and with YieldX, and, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to later, You know, we really saw a massive opportunity. And so I just decided that given the great state that the company was in and the great leadership and investors and path that that was on, that, that it was the right time to follow my passions and uh, start YieldX.
0: Yeah, so let's jump into YieldX right now. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, what problem the company is trying to solve, what your main clients are, and so on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, historically, there's been a lack of um, automation and efficiency around fixed income and fixed income investing generally. So, the goal of YieldX is to help create a digital end to end infrastructure for fixed income. And what that means is essentially we create a sort of unified platform across the key pillars of fixed income, where historically legacy systems have had to be cobbled together to create that end-to-end approach. And so by taking an infrastructure-first approach to solving this problem, we're really able to democratize fixed income investing for all different types of end users. And that's really exciting. So, you know, the first key pillar that we focused on was the access Um, So uh, as you know, fixed income is comprised of many different asset classes. You have corporate bonds that are in a different location, trade differently than, say, muni bonds or treasuries, and certainly different than ETFs and different fund products. And we really wanted to give the market a single place to find all of those different opportunities. The second key pillar is the analytics layer. So once you've identified the assets that you're looking to invest in, Having the ability to run different scenarios and what does it look like if I maximize my yield and I constrain my risk? What does it look like if I want to minimize my risk and find the most cost effective option? So that's really the quant layer that we've built to help people craft, construct, and optimize portfolios. Of course, then the third pillar is the execution and custody layer. So the ability to digitally onboard customers and digitally onboard accounts. And to trade programmatically. You know, certainly the automation around fixed income has picked up significantly over time, especially post-COVID um, and throughout COVID. So that's something that's a really interesting and exciting secular trend that we're seeing. And then lastly, the core operating systems layer. So all of your order management, position management. Post trade rebalancing analytics and compliance. So, historically, each of those pillars has been an independent sort of piece of the puzzle that people obviously need, whether it's Bloomberg or different analytics programs, execution platforms, OMS, PMS. That's really component parts that are needed to be able to execute fixed income effectively. And it's such a massive asset class that has been predominantly controlled by large asset managers, which is great. And you know, were it not for those asset managers, people would not have any access to directly invest in, in these products. But we we really want to empower the entire market to be able to access fixed income in a really personalized way.
0: Understood and just help me understand who are the major clients of YieldX?
1: Sure. So we actually aren't in a position to name specific clients, but I can give you sort of use cases and the types clients that we service. So definitely focus on fintechs. So our products are really threefold. One, we have a SaaS product called our YieldX Hub, and that's something that we can white label to offer to folks like asset managers, broker dealers, and anyone that's client facing. So as a B2B platform, or effectively B2B2C, we give people the opportunity to use our front-end workflows, which are a completely different way of looking at the market, where we start with understanding what the client's trying to achieve, and then we back into the right product and portfolio for them. We also work with, as I said, large asset managers, global investment banks, all sorts of different technology platforms and middleware, anyone that's really looking to provide cash management solutions. So Our APIs and our embedded apps are a very low-code piece of technology where you can just Put them in, into your code base and then your front end will render the same as the customer experience that your users are used to, but then you'll have our functionality on the back end, as well as a full suite of complete APIs, which is you know, built on microservices, where you can pull different services to create workflows that are customized for the use case you're looking to achieve. So Some investors in fixed income are looking only for the underlying individual fixed income securities like bonds. or or treasuries some are looking for fund products that are very liquid very diversified so really what we do is we help people target the best outcome that they're trying to achieve and then go after that
0: got it so what are some of the major differences in selling to businesses and investment professionals like you are right now compared to selling to uh, retail investors many of whom were investing for the first time in money line any big learnings there
1: First of all from a business perspective it's a completely different customer acquisition strategy it's a different sales life cycle it's a different cost it's a different marketing plan you know it's really just a totally different uh, approach that you have to take as a company and it's something that you know certainly everyone seems to have a very strong conviction on one one way or the other and uh, when when we went out and, and started pitching early investors you know, one of the pieces of feedback that we definitely got was you got to pick one. And so I think that um, we're big fans of listening to, to the market and hearing, you know, what our, our prospective clients say, given that we're delivering infrastructure, we're very use case driven. And so, you know, sitting down with product teams, portfolio managers, investors, understanding their pain points, it's a much different sort of, in a way, bespoke approach to delivering the end result than it is for creating a product that you're trying to show value to a direct end consumer. Because at the end of the day, the consumers there are many more consumers than there are individual businesses, obviously. And therefore you have to create products that appeal to the greatest common denominator. You can't really truly customize to every end consumer on a one-off basis. When you've created the type of very modular, flexible infrastructure that we've created, the people that consumers trust to manage their money, like the different um, intermediaries that we deal with as clients of YieldX, have the ability to understand their customer much more deeply and then use our technology in a very flexible
0: way to deliver that result. You mentioned a little bit about your VC backers and listening to them. Has it been easier to fundraise this time around now that you are a serial entrepreneur and you've got that money line name behind you?
1: Yeah, certainly. Look, you know, I think everyone comes into their career as an entrepreneur with strong conviction that their idea is um, able to be actualized, is able to scale, you know, the, the market will adopt what their view is. One of the things that I've learned, both as an investor and as as an entrepreneur and an operator, is that experience really matters more than anything. And there is no shortage of decisions that you make in a single day that can impact the trajectory of your entire business. And a lot of those are not the, sort of glossy, appealing, big-picture things that people think about or they learn about in school, it's often, you know, how do you deal with a situation with a partner? How do you deal with a specific aspect of a contract negotiation that probably won't realistically be an issue but could be an issue three years from now? It's sort of these micro-decisions, and I sort of think about it as laying bricks. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're all here to build, and we're all here to put down a very solid foundation that you can build upon And you want to make sure that every single discussion you have, every interaction you have, it's not all going to be life and death. But if you look back over the course of a day and then over the course of a month and then over the course of a career, you've laid a significant amount of bricks that ultimately when put together make a much more solid foundation. And that's something that you can only learn through being in the trenches. And certainly, we've made a lot of decisions at Moneyline. We had a lot of great successes. We had a lot of products that we tried and and were not adopted for a multitude of reasons and that's just life that's learning
0: even with the best laid plans uh, or you know best brick laying I imagine the roller coaster investment landscape of the past year and a half was a tricky challenge for you guys How was it weathering that storm have you seen demand increase at all now that we're kind of coming out of the pandemic in the us
1: yeah so I think if we're being completely honest, at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone had a big question mark over their head, right? Nobody really knew where this was headed. I think most people understood that it was going to be, in the short term, a lot tougher uh, than not. And so the uh, decisions that we had to make through that period really defined who we are today. And I think being very fiscally conservative, being very deliberate on decisions we made about product, about marketing spend, about how we scaled the headcount of the organization all put us in a position to come out of the pandemic stronger than ever. Of course, as we talked about earlier, the timing is really important of certain things that inform the trajectory of success of, of a business. Automation and fixed income was taking it was getting significant traction prior to the pandemic and when trading floors were shut down that picked up very significantly additionally i think people became a lot more open minded to using automation to augment some of the more manual processes that were required prior to the pandemic because a lot i think people probably took for granted how important it is to sit in a conference room with someone in a meeting and collaborate face to face to be able to get to an effective end result whereas the technology can help solve for a lot of those use cases, a lot of those interactions in a way that people probably weren't forced to really confront prior to that.
0: And on that same note, uh, are you guys working, are you guys back in the office now? Or are you uh, using a remote delivery model?
1: So I, I am in the office right now. We intend to be back in the office in, as I believe many people are, initially some sort of hybrid approach. Um, and certainly will be a, a hybrid approach for the foreseeable future because we were only born as a company very shortly before the pandemic. And what that enabled us to do, first and foremost, we kind of started off in both Miami and New York. Um, my partner, Steve Gross, and a number of the other Folks on the team are based in, in the Northeast, so I was spending a lot of time going back and forth. Obviously, that came to a very significant and uh, abrupt halt during the pandemic, but what that really did is it opened up our minds as to what it means to be an effective and productive team member and to contribute in a way that's meaningful to the organization because we had to think that way. Obviously, as we were growing a company. We had just raised new capital our investors continued to be very supportive and have strong conviction and belief in what we're doing long term and regardless of what ultimately ended up happening with the pandemic i think they believed that we would figure out the path forward and in order to do that we really needed to we needed to grow we needed to build and we needed to become as efficient and effective as possible so it was really interesting you know we were kind of born using slack using zoom so a lot of that was in our dna from day 1 And then as more and more people sort of moved out of the major metropolitan areas to very significantly socially distance, we found that, you know, we got great talent on the West Coast, we got great talent internationally. And when people didn't have to think about dedicating, you know, a few hours of their day to commuting, it enabled them to actually become a lot more productive.
0: One of the things I have a tough time wrapping my head around is how companies that are growing manage to do so effectively over the past year and a half specifically with with new hires not having kind of that social capital within the team and not really you know having that culture instilled in them curious if if you found any nice tricks to help make that possible for yieldx
1: yeah, it's, it's a trick that I use, uh, I try to use uh, in all aspects of my life, and that's communication, right? And it's a lot easier. You kind of learn and understand and grow through osmosis when you're in an office around people hearing what's going on. And even if you're not part of a specific meeting or conversation, you overhear it, you hear people talking about it, you hear people responding. So we were forced to get really good at communicating with the team, providing updates. We have very regimented team updates. We try to do at least once a month. We do investor update letters very consistently. It's important to communicate, obviously, not just with the team, but with the people that are backing you so they understand what's going on. And certainly, I would imagine that any investor out there you know, had some level of concern about exactly what you just described. And then just trying to incentivize people to do what's best for them in the context of getting the job done. And so, you know, a lot of people probably didn't realize just how important that social dynamic at the office was. And then having to all of a sudden be quarantined either alone or with family, which poses its own set of challenges that people had to work through. We wanted, you know, we offered incentives to people to get supplies to work from home and, you know, certain sort of social benefits and and health benefits to make sure that people were taking care of, you know, not just obviously their work product,
0: but their body and their mind. Zooming out a little bit, what are some of your short term goals for YieldX and maybe uh, your long term North Star vision for the company?
1: Sure. So, you know, we really believe that we're changing the markets and we believe that we're providing access to an asset class in a way that most people and investors have not had the ability to do historically for a number of reasons. But the fact is that now that we've built this incredibly flexible, personalized, you know, modular infrastructure, we want to see people appreciate it. We want to see different types of companies provide access to this asset class. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we try to constantly debunk is this narrative that there's no yield out there. Everyone's looking for yield. You know, obviously it exists in a part of the yield risk curve. You know, on one side you have crypto and equities, super high upside, super high volatility. On the other side you have, you know, very um, steady but low yield sort of savings products, CDs, etc. And there's a whole world of Yield products out there that have a very interesting risk-adjusted return that everyone should be taking a serious look at, and I think people tend to look at the greatest, you know, sort of common denominator of you know the large mutual funds, uh, some of the larger ETFs, and they say, oh, well, those are low, low yielding right now. Well, that's because that's. Who gets the most coverage, um, and understandably so. They are often issued by very large name issuers and asset managers. But the fact is that with YieldX, we have the ability to be product and issuer agnostic, and therefore we can find the best yield outcome for people with the lowest risk and for the lowest cost. And that's a really important sort of value proposition that has not been able to be done historically.
0: What about major fin trends that you're watching? Anything you're excited about for the next three to five years?
1: Well, you mentioned crypto and I think it is worth exploring a little bit in the context of yield. There's some really interesting things going on and partnerships that we're working on in the DeFi space um, with, you know, stablecoin yields and there are going to be incredible opportunities for people to get exposure to crypto and those types of assets without buying necessarily the underlying exposure to the currency. I'm very excited about the direction of and the trend of embedded fintech and embedded finance. I think that uh, the market really changed with Walmart coming in and saying we're going to now be a fintech company. Historically, you know, large retailers would partner with large Wall Street institutions and issue something like a financing option through a credit card, whereas, you know, now I think every company out there, regardless of its core business model, is looking at ways to monetize their user base. And financial products are, whether they had known it or really realized the impact of it, every single retail transaction involves a payment. Many and increasingly involve financing options. And so there's all sorts of different ways that value can be unlocked across every industry's ecosystem. And and there's many, many different fintech companies that are doing very interesting things in the space that um, I'm excited to see how they play out over the next couple
0: of years. We had Yan Wu of Bond come on a few weeks, maybe a few months back at this point, and Bond works on helping brands build out their financial services products. I think the two of you probably get along pretty well. He had, it sounded almost like you were reading off his script when you were talking about embedded finance there. All right, cool. So rapid fire round coming up. Uh, we like to keep our answers here to 10 seconds or less. Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. Let's do it. Which accomplishment are you most proud of?
1: Definitely my family. I've got a seven-year-old daughter learning to code Python, and I've got a five-year-old son who is still in the process of deciding whether he wants to be a rock star or an Navy seal, so we'll go with it.
0: I love it. That's great. What was your first job?
1: Arbitraging Spice Girls concert tickets.
0: I actually have to ask a follow-up on that. Was that pretty successful? <laughs>
1: It was uh, one of the most opportunistic trades uh, of of my young life at the time. I was waiting in in a line at uh, Ticketmaster back when you had to actually go buy tickets, and they had a lottery process uh, where I was waiting in line for another concert, and uh, it just so happened that where I was placed in line, I got called first for the first Spice Girls US tour. And there was about 600 mothers and their children waiting in line behind me. And I decided that uh, based on what I understood at that time of supply and demand, that I should probably use the money I had to buy the Spice Girls tickets and walked away about uh, $700 richer at the time, which was a heck of a lot of money.
0: (laughs) That's a great story. Shows your entrepreneurial spirit from early on. What was the last show you binge watched?
1: (laughs) Funny enough, Startup.
0: (laughs) I've been thinking about it. it. Is it good? it is good it is good yeah. surprisingly so
1: all right i'll add it I'm it's still- here in my home, my home turf in miami so
0: oh nice i'm still watching um mayor of east town uh that takes place maybe not that close to cherry hill i think north northwest of philly somewhere near where you were raised
1: i'll put it on the list
0: yeah it's pretty good it's pretty good uh, what are you most excited for in 2021
1: Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) There's so much to be excited about coming out of the pandemic. I think uh, definitely most excited about uh, getting back on the road and getting back in the office, seeing people and continuing to forge deep and meaningful relationships. Something that I think we've all been missing.
0: Agreed. And last question, you can take a little longer on this one if you'd like. Uh, What does success look like for you?
1: I wish we could uh, record this once a year for the rest of my life and be an interesting uh, montage at the end. But I think uh, most simplistically, it's balance. And I I think, you know, especially entrepreneurs and people looking to go into uh, early stage companies, you can sort of get lost in in the uh, glitz of it all and and focus on the wrong things. And when you focus on the wrong things, you end up doing things for the wrong reasons. So finding balance, that's really what success is.
0: That's a great answer. Maybe we'll get you back on the show a year from now and I can ask you the same question and see if it's changed. Um, I kind of like the idea of asking that question again and again. But that's all I've got. Adam, it's been so much fun having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the conversation.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor Raphael Austria for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host. I know it's